I'm here with Dana and David. So happy that you are both here. These are the authors of Addiction Rescue, the No BS Guide to Recovery. And I want to start off first with how did you all enter this addiction recovery space? How did you get here? Well, I could promise you I didn't sit in the guidance counselor's office at 17 years old and say, where do you see yourself in 40 years? <laughs> That is so uh, obviously through my own experiences, a little uh, research and discovery and getting to the point where um, I now use my adversity to help other people through my experience, strength and hope. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, Dana. Fill you in a little bit on that, Ebony. Dave and I are former spouses mm -hmm. um, and we lived the life and lived through the life of a lot of addictions um, uh, that David had. So uh, when David and I met, um, uh, he had been in recovery, he had been through treatment and I had been on the other side of addiction all my life and I had been in my own recovery, learning my codependent and enabling ways so that when, by the time we had met, uh, we were both recovering from him, his addictions and me, my enabling those people's addictions. And so, when we were married, um, a few years into our marriage, David relapsed after um, some knee surgeries and got addicted to opioids. He says uh, he's a first generation opioid guy when we thought opioids were safe and effective. Um, and then that turned to heroin that uh, exponentially created a gambling addiction in him. And eventually I divorced him trying to protect my two ch our, our two children. And then uh, ensuing after that, he bankrupted the company, ended up in prison, and ended up getting clean and sober. And so then we came back together to work with other families that were dealing with addiction and the destruction that it causes. That's only half the story, though, Ebony. If you knew the other half, you really wouldn't believe it. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, that sounds like a book in and of itself, just that story. <laughs> I'm working on that memoir now. Oh my gosh. Okay. So Dana, you are the enabler. David right. was the addict. And you guys just, where did you meet? Uh, when we originally met? Yeah. Well, he had come to Minnesota to get clean and sober at a very well-renowned treatment center here. And he had been here and I came here to help my sister because I'm a caretaker and she needed some help. And we met right here in the middle. He came from New York. I came from California. We met in Minnesota at a health club. They, you know, the, the meeting spot of the eighties and nineties yeah. and, uh, and then everything ensued from there. Wow. That is and it's just so interesting how the universe just brings people together. And even though the marriage didn't didn't last, I mean, look at what you're building. So let's talk about this book. Let's talk about this book. Um, how is this book helping people? Um, it's interesting you say that. I'm, I am a interventionist and a sober coach. And um, when I work with a client, I give them a book. And each chapter has questions at the end of um, the chapter to go through it questions that you might want to read, look at, answer, right? See how it applies in your life. And um, it's been quite effective. It is, you know, people are, that I work with, they write about it, they send it in, and it's making them take a look at stuff introspectively that they haven't before. So there's a message in there um, to those that are struggling, right? To show that you don't have to do this alone. Together, we could do what you probably could not do alone. 
Mm-hmm. Short and long of it, it's um, it's effective. Now, now, what kind of addictions are we talking here? Are we like any addictions, or is it primarily drug addiction, or no, it's we... drug and alcohol and process addictions such as gaming, gambling, food, shopping, porn. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so most of our clients end up being the ones that are dealing with alcohol and substance use disorder because those are the ones that are fatal. But we address in the beginning of the book that all addictions really affect the brain in the same way. They all change the neural pathways. They're all supplying dopamine and serotonin. And when you change those levels in your brain because of the substance or process addiction that you're using, that's where the problem comes in. So we talk about addiction being anything that's causing a imbalance, um, throwing your life into chaos. When other people are telling you, you might want to take a look at this, but you're thinking, I don't have a problem. Those are the kind of addictions we're talking about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And with these, these questions that are at the end of each chapter, are these questions, do any of them kind of get to um, well, I guess this is kind of a silly question, but do they get to the root of the addiction? Like how, how does that even happen with, with people where they get into that space of needing the alcohol, needing the drugs, needing the whatever? I mean, is it a myriad of things or is it, does it usually come down one or two? So I think that centered at the roots of addiction is trauma, mm-hmm. right? And you know, in order to heal the addiction, I say we have to process the trauma. I don't know if you ever heal the trauma, but you learn ways to process it. Um, it's always going to be there. You don't forget about it. You might have uh, worked through it differently, but I think that's really the key to this. Mm. Mm-hmm. Which a lot of facilities and treatment centers say that they treat, but they actually don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so uh, speaking of trauma, with this pandemic, it's been a traumatic, traumatic for a lot of people in a lot of different ways. So how has the pandemic spurred gray area drinking and the sober curious movement? So that you're absolutely right. So more people have started or increased their substance or alcohol process use addictions um, through this pandemic, right? Because we're all looking to medicate to feel better through it. And what people are finding is that one glass of wine that used to do it for them is now leading to a whole bottle, or I don't have to drive home, I can have a second or third cocktail. And so people in the gray area of drinking, they're not suffering severe consequences, they're not having DUIs, they're not finding themselves in a divorce situation. So they're not dealing with those kinds of severe consequences, but they are finding that their life and their quality of life has changed. So maybe they're losing days on the weekends because they're hungover. Maybe their anxiety is causing them to, you know, question the last drink they had and the fact that they want another one first thing in the morning. So, so gray area drinkers have spurred the sober curious movement of would my life feel better if I tried on sobriety and things like Jai January and sober October have really ha- uh, helped people to take a look at their relationship with alcohol. Mm, okay, so when you say gray area drinking, what you mean is the people that are not seriously addicted, where it is disturbing their life in a huge way. It's kind of, you have a little drink here or there, but you don't feel good about yourself after. That's exactly it. It's between yeah. moderate and um, rock bottom mm-hmm. and just starting to question your drinking habits. And I need 
more to feel the same. And I'm not feeling good about the drinking that I'm doing. Does gray area drinking, can that lead to more serious addictions? 100%. Yes. Gray area drinking does lead to alcohol use disorder. Wow. Okay. And so Um, crossing that line from use to misuse and then misuse to abuse are very fine lines. And that's why we want to help people understand their drinking habits before it gets to that point where it comes up to bite them in the ass and it is too late and they do have a dependency on it. Mm-hmm. You know, I would, th- is that how most addictions start? It's kind of just, it's something that you maybe do every once in a while to help yourself feel a little better, but it's not uh, completely wreaking havoc in your life. And then you just become a little bit more addicted to it and it just leads to something even more worse. Or it could be a genetic predisposition, right? As well. There could be many reasons. I know people that go in for, um, some type of acute surgery and get hooked on whatever it might be, prescription pills, you know, and they might have a drink or two with the prescription pills and now they're feeling the way they haven't felt before and their body becomes physically addicted. So they're needing more and more of that substance. Mm-hmm. Maintain the same dopamine as they did initially. Mm-hmm. So that's when the chase comes, right? Mm-hmm. You're trying to chase that initial feeling of feeling so good about yourself and now you keep going further and further and deeper and deeper into it as you're spiraling deep into that dark hole of addiction. And for, for family members that are dealing with other family members with addictions, how can they help their loved ones? Because that's, tra- that's traumatic in and of itself, being related to someone who is addicted. Absolutely. Absolutely. It doesn't just affect the person that's addicted. It affects everybody around them. And what we try to tell people when we're doing our family coaching services is that, first of all, you didn't cause it. You can't control it as much as we think that we can beg, plead, bargain um, with our loved one. Nothing, none of those things is going to change their habits. And the and only can't cure it. Yeah. Right. What's that, David? The third C, right? You can't cure it. Mm. Right. So, so what we try to encourage family members to do is get in their own recovery. You don't have to wait till your loved one gets in recovery to find your own recovery. And that means to stop the begging and the pleading, stop the enabling behavior, stop hiding it and get into your own recovery to lead by example for your loved one to get into their recovery. Cause once one person steps out of that role, it changes the dynamics of the relationship and therefore the, uh, the person on the other side, the addict, is going to take a look, too, because it's uncomfortable for them when somebody else steps out of that role. Oh, my gosh. That's so, I can just imagine how difficult it would be if you have, like, a sister or a brother and you're really trying to help them. Because you're so, you're so involved and connected with them just as a relative. And it's almost like their pain, you are feeling their pain, and you're so invested in their healing. It's so hard to take a step back from that. It is so hard. And the hardest is for parents mm-hmm. because when you're dealing with your child, that's the worst because you brought them into the world, you feel responsible for them and you have an ultimate need to fix them and help them feel better. Right. And you have no control over it. And and keeping them from the consequences that would naturally come is just prolonging the inevitable and making it even worse, mm-hmm. even though we think we're making it better. Mm-hmm. And when parents are working with their, or have their children, uh, it's a little re- different relationship than siblings, right? Um, there's so much more unconditional 
love or whatever you, word you want to use in that relationship where siblings have more of a conditional love, you know, um, they're not going to let the sibling keep doing what they're doing to the parents. And they're going to really set the boundary more so than the parents might. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. <laughs> that's yeah. I can, I've, I don't have children, but I, I was listening to recently an, a podcast where a mother had a daughter who was an addict and the daughter would come stay with the mother and you know the mother would let her in and she her addiction wasn't getting any better until one day the daughter came knocking on the door the mother would not let her in and it was super cold outside and the daughter was just screaming and big and the mother was inside just crying and she said she knew she couldn't she just couldn't anymore and after that night the daughter went in for um addiction help recovery treatment um, yep. yeah so that's exactly what I'm talking about. As soon as you change your role and set that boundary, it makes the other person have to look at their behavior. Mm -hmm. And we deal with these, we deal with this all the time with the families we work in. We, we have, we have parents where the, the child has taken over the home and they're not even staying there anymore because they don't feel safe there, mm -hmm. but they don't know how to say no to their child to get them out. So they're staying at a hotel. Mm. I mean, yeah, it, it's crazy. So we help those families set the boundaries to get their lives back. Cause that's the, that's the whole goal is you need to be able to have your life and live out your dreams, whether the person in your life is using or not using or what they're doing. And we help people discover what their lives truly are about so they can get back to those lives. So if you, if you're the parent or you're the sibling, you're the aunt, you're the uncle, whatever, when is the best time to do an intervention for your loved one that's addicted? You know, I hear that question a lot. You know, people say, is there a right time? If they're struggling, suffering with self-destructive behaviors, um, doing things that are really unhealthy, that is the time to intervene. You know, unfortunately, I'm one of the last calls, not one of the first calls, right? And we often talk about we're trying to get them off the elevator before the ground floor. Mm. Um, you know, people say rock bottom, they have to hit rock bottom. Rock bottom is an emotion, it's a feeling, right? Of being so wiped out, it doesn't mean you have to be six feet under um, where people look at it like that. So really when they're noticing this and uh, they seeing that there is addiction, there is um, change of behavior, change of attitude, change of clothes, change of self uh, cleanliness, things like that. Something else is going on that needs to be addressed. Mm. I think I can just imagine that most people, when they begin to see those beginning signs of like the cleanliness and the and the um, the behavior that's taking a left turn, they keep hoping it's going to change. So they'll like, just let me wait it out and see because maybe they'll change and yeah. denial. Yeah, they'll snap out of it, right? Right. They're yeah. just going through this funk. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then you know we often see that that funk gets deeper and deeper and they've lost the choice to stop because the physical addiction, had, the physical cravings is so strong right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, we see this all the time. It's very, it's sad, but real. And you're right, the pandemic did create a lot of this as well. The collateral damage, the carnage and fallout from that. If addiction is a disease of isolation and loneliness and the antidote is commitment to connection, commitment to community, commitment to well-being you know not many people are adhering to that when they're sheltering in place exactly yeah yeah and they have to learn to live in this new world of zoom right 
Mm-hmm. Wow. This has been such an enlightening conversation, Dana and David. I want to give you this last opportunity. If you have any words of encouragement for a family member who has a another family member who is addicted and, and going through this horrible place in their lives, if you want to say a word to them. Yeah, you know what I want to say is you're never hopeless, you're never out of hope, and it's never too late. And it's just a conversation. It's being willing to ask for help. And that's what David and I are here for. We will have a conversation with anyone at any time to help them decipher, you know, what is going on and what they can do about it to intervene and make it a better situation. So um, do you want me to give out a little place where they can find us? Sure. Um, yes. Where can we find yeah. you? So the the um uh, info at theliferecoverycoach.com. Our website is theliferecoverycoach.com. You can book in a call. Uh, we have phone numbers on there. We're available 24 seven pretty much uh, to help anybody uh, that's looking for a little guidance in the situation. Mm. And our book is Addiction Rescue, Addiction Rescue, the No BS Guide to Recovery. It's on Amazon uh, and Book Baby. And, you know, families that are going through this, we understand we hear this word so often, codependency. It's gotten to the point where it's just really played itself out. Every family is going to have codependency in it. But what we're suggesting is if it's done through healthy boundaries, it becomes healthy codependency rather than the unhealthy part of it. And that's mm -hmm. what we're trying to work with families on to show them. Mm. Thank you so much for being here and sharing with us um, all of the little ins and outs, well, not all of them, but you went through a lot of the, the little things that sometimes we just don't think enough about as far as addiction, as far as helping people, as far as when to intervene. And, and I really appreciate your time. And I'm going to say bye-bye, but not to you all, because I'm going to chat for chat with you for a moment, but bye-bye to our viewers. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Bookish, and I will see you next time.